smartcast you're listening to a hindustan times production brought to you by hd smartcast you're listening to on the record with me sunitra choudhury and i'm super excited about my guest today Economist Geeta Gopinath has just been appointed the first deputy managing director at the International Monetary Fund. It's the first time that a woman has got this job. It's especially exciting knowing that she studied in Delhi in Lady Shri Ram College and later at Delhi School of Economics before moving to Princeton and now she's on a break from teaching at Harvard University. So what does one of the world's top economists think about the state of the world now? about the position of women in it here's geeta gopinath and surviving the post pandemic world so congratulations on the new assignment i just wanted to ask you what you made of all these headlines that i saw so many people have said that imf is now led by two women oh but thank you i think it's great and fantastic and uh, you know i had a great time working with uh, the managing director Kristalina Georgieva and we worked really well together so you know let's see what comes out of it i wanted to ask you um is there any particular because you know we all heard you make the announcement that you're going now going back to your teaching job at harvard and and then this came up was there anything that kind of made up your mind about why you should Uh, you know at this moment stay back at the fund instead of going to an academic life so i was presented with this new opportunity which is of uh, becoming the first deputy managing director and you know in my 3 years at the fund i could see the impact that we had when we combined very rigorous analytical work uh, and and public policy making you know the hope was that maybe the crisis was uh, coming off and this you know this was a, was okay for me to go back to academia yeah. but unfortunately the recent months have shown that this is not over and there is uh, you know there are there's still a lot of uncertainty in the future these are turbulent times there are big economic issues the world is grappling with so i thought okay maybe it probably makes sense for me to continue in the in public service for a few more years i mean i find it amazing that it's the first woman doing the job that you're doing why do you think that is as chief economist yes, right yes yes no i think uh, you know it's just a reflection of the fact that for the longest time society hasn't done what was needed to make sure that women uh, got the opportunities they absolutely deserve it's not like women were not ready for these jobs they've always been ready for these jobs it's just that you know they didn't come to mind because you you always had male chief economists and they tend to think of other men uh, and yeah. so you have to break them all you have to break the trends so i'm glad uh, that did change with me though there were lots of other women economists before me who could have done the job uh, well so you know is it especially true in your field of economics and i ask you that because recently i heard this interview of uh, cecilia conrad mm-hmm. and she was talking about the fact that you know and she, she like yourself is a woman of color uh, and she was talking about the fact that when she first started at duke university uh, her hod head of the department had to come and tell her that you know uh, put on really complex stuff um, on the blackboard 
so that a lot of men uh white men who are listening to you your students they don't undermine you you're such a good teacher you're making it look easy so you have to and she then went on to say that at every meeting later on in life i had to give a version of that complex calculus on the on the board to prove myself and then it would be okay because usually people just assume and she said it's especially true of economics i just wanted to know from your experience do you share that and can you like you know share some experience like that i completely understand where she's coming from and even within economics some fields of economics have a much bigger male dominance than others do so macroeconomics for instance mm-hmm. is one is the area there that i work in where you had you know if you if you think of all the the famous economists i mean they're all men you see keynes and friedman and uh you know adam smith and so on they're all male names and so it it's absolutely the case that this uh, i think as a as a woman you are being constantly judged about how good you are and whether you know your stuff uh, and you do have to work extra hard at um, being always extremely prepared you know having the right answers uh, you know the earlier in my career there were you know you have there were times when you felt people were speaking over you mm-hmm. you know when that you they really just didn't really want to listen to what you had to say um but of course that changes over time thankfully Is some, there a hack that you place. have that you can share? Like she said that basically with every meeting I had to do a version of it. Do you have a hack? Because I think it's extremely useful, you know, for all of all women to kind of gain from that. And you've been so successful. So is yeah. there a hack that you have? Um you know, I think I I don't suffer disrespect lightly in any form or shape. <laughs> so I think my uh, style has been more about uh, you know just demanding that people listen to what i have to say when when i have something to say and 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 you have to be that you think you have to be your best advocate uh, at all times and uh, you know have faith in your own abilities because most people will not pat you on the back uh, so you have to be in some sense your own biggest uh, advocate and and have faith in what you can do and you know push yourself forward How is your academic life uh, or life on campus at Harvard uh, different from uh, your job at the IMF? You know, this what we're doing right now is is much more common in my current job at the IMF than as a Harvard professor. Uh, But know, journalists always reach out to all Harvard academics, <laughs> especially in your field, right? They are giving economists, uh, you know, academics are always. Uh, no, we do, but not not with the frequency that you would once you're in the public space. When you when you are, uh, you know, have a public profile, then there's a lot more of that that happens. You know, as an academic, I used to love having long hours, very quiet hours of uh, you know sitting with my my books. Uh, which I unfortunately don't have at this time. Um, uh, but on the other hand, you know, this has been—it's uh, been great to be able to have much more immediate visible impact on the world, which is much harder to do as a professor. You know, as chief economist, um, was there something that you feel that you kind of influenced? Like you're saying that you know, it, there's greater satisfaction that way. Yeah. Especially, so, you talk a lot about public service as well. Yeah. The. Um, You know, I co-authored a paper on a proposal to end the COVID-19 pandemic, yes. where I think it was one of the first that 
provided some sort of a roadmap on what ne what was needed on vaccinations, testing, therapeutics in terms of making sure there was equitable access around the world. But we were building off the very important work that had been done by the WHO and the World Bank. Uh, but kind of we put a proposal together, we put a price tag on it, which is $50 billion. You know, we, we had done previous analysis that showed that the gains were in trillions of dollars to having these kinds of policies in place. So it was a very clear, obvious investment case. Uh, and, you know, that, got, that has had, I think that has been helpful with the multilateral leaders task force came out of that, which was uh, a joint, uh, you know, collaboration between the WHO, the World Bank, WTO, and the IMF. Um, they were endorsed the principles of that proposal. Uh, and we've been working very hard to, um, you know, get action on the ground. So, you know, that's, I guess, my, one example of, of uh, where I feel like I was in a position to have direct influence. No, and I have lots of follow-up questions about the COVID situation, but I want to just um, stay with this, you know, um, about your development and your education and all of that, because you have so much of an India connection in that as well. Just, uh, you know, I see when I look at your bio and you having studied in Mysore and then Lady Ram College in Delhi and uh, Delhi School of Economics. Um, what do you think contributed most? Because I know I heard your previous interview where you said that the first time you read about economics was when you came to a university yeah. as an undergraduate. So what do you think contributed most to you becoming like a top uh, person in your field in economics? Uh, so, I mean, you know, so I took my first class in economics at LSR. Um, but at, but those were, that was the year 1989 to 92 is when I did my undergrad. And if you remember, those were the years when India had uh, an external account crisis, yeah. you know, it had an IMF program, it went on the path of uh, liberalization and opening up. And, and so, you know, that it got, uh, you know, economics became very tangible, very interesting. And so that's, I think that was one big uh, event that uh, triggered my deeper interest in the subject. Um, and, you know, in general, I've always, I mean, I was a science student before, I, I love the the uh, the use of mathematical tools in economics so that was fun so it's a good it's a social science which which uh, uses a lot of mathematics and so I I enjoyed that too so I think it's those combination where it's, it's very clear that economics is a subject which has a lot of social relevance uh, and you know doing economics right in the policy space can make a big difference to people's lives um, and it was intellectually very interesting too so was it enabling your early education because you know. There's so much talk right now about which runs down Indian education. Um, and, you know, so many people who are who can afford it, they send their children to IB schools or, uh, you know, GCSEs and international boards so that they get an international level of education. I want to ask you because you're really, uh, you know, you uh, till your master's, your graduate program, it's all in Indian education. Yes. Um, so I wanted to ask you, so what would you, how would you assess it? Or is it just that you were brilliant and you would have done really well anywhere? Um, I really, because that's of interest to all of us, you know? Uh, you know, I, obviously times have changed and the kinds of options people have these days is different from back then. But it remains the case that while there are some very good colleges uh, with very good faculty in economics, 
It's still limited in numbers. Mm. And, you know, it's still pretty shocking, the cutoffs that I read about to get into LSR. I would never get in this, in this time. You follow that? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's hard not to follow. It's, just, you know, it's insane, 99.9% and so on. Uh, so obviously there is a shortage, there's a supply problem in terms of, uh, you know, good institutions at which people can get uh, a, a, a strong education in fields like economics. I think in other subjects, maybe in the sciences, it's, uh, there's much more there. Um, and so that's why I think people are looking outside. Uh, also, you know, the whole liberal arts education where you don't have to commit to a subject uh, at the age of 17 or 18, you know, which is a big thing, right? I mean, it turned out, for me, it, it turned out fine that I started doing economics and something that I stuck with and it, I actually enjoyed it. But it could have just have been as well as been that I hated it, right? So we, the fact that you have to commit to what, degree yeah. you're going to get in is a, it's a huge commitment. And yeah. so I think for a lot of people, the attraction of, of, of some of these overseas universities is that you have the ability to delay that decision when you've taken a few more classes to see what you want, want to do. But of course, I mean, there are other colleges coming up in the US, sorry, in, in India now, right? Which yeah. have more of a more liberal arts perspective. But uh, otherwise, by itself, because you teach at an Ivy League now, would you say that LSR, and I know, don't worry about the fact that, you know, they'll, your, your old college will get hurt or anything. You can be honest about that. Do you think LSR or Delhi School of Economics, are they, are they world standard? I mean, they're very, very good institutions. Um, you know, it's, uh, there are differences in the extent that, for instance, oh, you know, when I teach at, uh, when I was teaching at Harvard, and I would, I would decide the topics I would cover, right, on, based on yeah. all the advances that have been made in the, in the previous year. My syllabus changed every year. Um, but here, of course, the syllabus is set at a much more, you know, at a higher institutional level. There is a very particular set of topics that get covered. So I think that's different. So that's one of the differences is that, you know, there's a group, there, the professors have much more flexibility on their course material, course content, and so on. Um, then, of course, there is a difference in terms of being more research universities, where the faculty does a lot of uh, hardcore research. Uh, but, you know, again, I'm very proud of my background in terms of LSR and Delhi School of Economics and the opportunities both those universities gave me. And, you know, you must remember that these were all very affordable universities yes. to study, right? I mean, it's incredible. that Almost could, free. Yeah, that that is, uh, it's pretty amazing too. Um, do you think that, um, apart from that, do you also think that there's this moment in, in time right now that women of color, um, uh, you know, I know that, uh, you know, people would say, oh, Indian, uh, Indian people of Indian origin are in great places in companies, they're CEOs and all that. But I also think, you know, I mean, if you look at it, Kamala Harris is American. But uh, but uh, do you think there's a moment there? Because Lena Nair's announcement came out just yesterday or day before she's announced and, you know, your appointment. And we are, or, or is it, are we just reading too much into it? Or we're looking for that little spark of hope and out of this. What do you, do, what do you make of that? I, I don't know if this is the moment. I'm one of those people that if I have to say that, I'm going to have to look at uh, data and trends and to see whether there's something different now yeah. relative to, yeah. you know, in the, in the past. So I don't know. 
but uh, but you know it is certainly you know it's it's you know we are I'm certainly reading I don't know if it's because I'm paying more attention to the news but you certainly do hear about uh, uh, people of Indian origin in, in in senior positions. You're, but this you would know about. Why is it um, that the Indian women workforce is so low? You know, you know, labor force part- women's labor force participation is not only that it's low, but it's yeah. declined. Yes, uh, over time, and that that is deeply troubling. So I, you know, I don't work in this area, so I haven't, you know, personally researched it. But uh, from what I have read, it's a combination of factors. One of it is the fact that, uh, you know, for women they have to. It continues to be the case that they have to both uh, be the caregivers at home take care of the family while doing the job too. Which means that if it so happens that, you know, incomes go up in the house, that it's so exhausting to be doing everything that a woman might decide to stay just to stay home. Unfortunately, that kind of a, uh, effect is showing up at lower levels of income in India than you saw in other, in other countries, right? Usually income per capita income goes up much more before you see this effect. Which then tells you that, you know, women need more support at home. Um, to be able to also engage in, in, in work outside. Secondly, it also matters what, what the office environment is like. Um, you know, whether there is a clear recognition of the, the manage, management of, of, of companies, you know, clearly says that they need to have more women in senior positions, give women the right opportunities, create the right work environment for women. That's important. It's important to have the you know, for women to feel safe to travel around, yes. to go to work, uh, to go to work at different hours. Uh, that's, that is not guaranteed, unfortunately. Uh, so there's that too. And of course, there is the, uh, the fact that, you know, it remains the case that women have uh, lesser access to education, uh, even now in many parts of India, than, than men, uh, boys do. So, I mean, all of these need to be addressed. Uh, it's, education levels are going up. But it's true, it's, it is disappointing that uh, women's participation has, uh, has not gone up. Um, I read this interview of your mother where she said uh, that, you know, um, that you're very lucky as well, that you have a good partner um, who, that you, you know, you come back to a nice uh, background too. And I found it in great contrast to, um, to uh, Indra Nui's um, mother, what she had said, right? That, you know, you still need to go out there and, get milk. And she, of course, said that her mother had evolved from there. We interviewed her recently when a book came out. Um, but I just wanted to ask you, do you think that's important? Uh, you know, uh, having the right kind of partner that you choose? Absolutely. In if what you, way? If you plan to have a partner, it's very important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too. Sure. It's very important to have uh, the, uh, a supportive partner who cares about your, you know, all the things that you accomplished and not just their own uh, accomplishments. So uh, I've been extremely lucky on that front. I'm married to a, a person who has been, you know, a huge uh, support and, you know, also also one of the people I rely on advice and, and all issues related to my career too. And, you know, that, I think that's very important because you, you can't do a job well if you're not mentally happy too. And so having the right... Uh, so if we <laughs> So if we kind of extend that, do you think that the reason why Indian women are so doing so poorly in the workforce and there's such less 
you know, participation is the fact that Indian men have a lot to do when it comes to supporting, uh, you know, their partners in pursuing their work. Is that a fair assessment and uh, a conclusion to draw from that? I think it is important for uh, for Indian men to do a whole lot more to support uh, women. You know, there are... I, I, I do see changing trends among, you know, friends that I have in, you know, uh, here, but obviously that's not all of India. And there are some very, it still remains, there are stereotypes on what women do versus what men do. And that can only change when women, when men, you know, become hugely supportive of, of, their, of their spouses. Okay, if we come now more to the COVID situation, um, and, and you know, as you said, that you've done lots of work in that area. But I wanted to ask you, um, what do you think about how India has done? And what do you think that we need to do much more in the post-COVID scenario? India rolled out policies very quickly to address uh, the, aftermath, you know, the consequences of the pandemic, be it in terms of, uh, you know, fiscal measures, they were you know, cash transfers to some poor households, the grains, providing food grains, but also in terms of uh, helping with loans and credit. And, uh, you know, so, so lots of measures were rolled out. In terms of vaccinations, India has been is one of the manufacturing, uh, one of, you know, destinations for, for vaccinate vaccines. And that has helped India a lot in terms of getting vaccinations in arm. In terms of what needs to be done, uh, I think first and foremost, you have you know there has the push on vaccinations has to continue. Um, I was looking at the numbers. So in terms of first dose vaccinations as a share of the total population, it's close to sixty percent now, but fully vaccinated is thirty seven percent in terms of as a share of the population, not just the adult population. Um, usually, what happens is that when cases come down, people think, well, this is over, and then they stop pushing on that front. And I think that you really need to continue that, right? Now, even though we know in other parts of the world, like the UK, which have high levels of vaccination rates, cases are going up. But, you know, you want to protect against severe disease and hospitalization and death. And that vaccine, vaccines still provide that protection. So that, I think, is has to remain a huge priority. Uh, we do think that, uh, you know, give the, so there has been a recovery in the Indian economy, of course. It's back to pre-pandemic levels. Uh, but it's been two years cumulatively where there hasn't been growth over, uh, cumulatively over two years, right? Uh, and so, we, you know, there is still what we could describe it as a partial recovery. It's an uneven recovery, which is that if you look at uh, rural areas, if you look at uh, especially you know, low-skilled workers, informal workers, the hit to their livelihoods have been much more. If you look at employment numbers, uh, you know, again, they have not returned to pre-pandemic levels. You can see that when you look at the amount of uptake of uh, the Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, you know, that's still, there's a huge demand for it. Uh, if you look at um, enterprises, the larger firms are doing well, but if you look at small enterprises, mid-sized enterprises, they're not doing as well. Mm. So there is this, there are these very divergent recoveries that policies would be needed to address. Um, you know, and attention has to be paid to it. In the 
once, you know, on a more longer term basis, there's been, of course, lots of reforms that have been pushed through, including the privatization of Air India, which, you know, I think is a very welcome uh, reform that happened. Uh, but, you know, India would need to maintain higher levels of spending on health, mm. on education. It will need to continue to spend a lot, and it has been doing a lot in physical infrastructure, digital infrastructure, it will need to do that. So, you know, those kinds of priorities will have to still be there. So you said cash transfer is a very important component of that. We only saw some state governments, for example, where you're advising Kerala, they did cash transfers. The centers kind of, you know, held back on that. They've done more the food transfer, grain transfer. And the rural employment. And the rural employment one. Sure. So would you still say that at this moment, um, would you recommend uh, cash, direct cash uh, transfers right. to... So firstly, I'm not advising the Kerala government right now. That was oh, back right. in... Uh, I forget when. <laughs> I'm not doing that anymore. The... Um, it, so our our view was that, uh, you know, more support needed to pro- be provided, but in the supplemental budgets, the supplementary budgets that were passed, uh, where they allocated more money for food, food grains, and they allocated more money for, again, Mandrega, the, Employment guarantee mm. scheme. Mm. I think those, uh, you know, those pretty much are what would be consistent with what we're saying in terms of uh, the additional 1% of GDP spending that we were saying India still needed. Is there any lasting impact, you see? Because, you know, we were all very distressed and I think it became a headline all over. I'm sure you saw the migrant crisis and going back. Or do you see them coming back? Because, you know, everyone's talking about the factors that the numbers are now uh, pre-pandemic level. But are there any lasting impact to the crisis that was there in the unorganized sector and the we, migrant so crisis? So ha- there hasn't been a full recovery in the labor market. Um, if you, again, so, you know, if you look at employment, if you look at labor force participation, that has not fully recovered yet. Uh, and you know, again, if we have another round with Omicron and so on, that could derail any such recovery. Another big area is in respect to uh, education. Yeah. I think that has, you know, children have been out of school for almost two years. And it's very hard. Remote learning is not easy and, you know, it's not practical and it's just not even feasible for large numbers of children. Uh, So, you know, the impact on learning, I think, has been substantial. And that will not automatically correct itself. It will have to be, you know, action will have to be taken to address it. So that is another long-lasting effect. We have to see what happens to investment. Investment has, has recovered, but again, you know, it's, um, you know, it's how much more of a private sector investment will we see? It's not clear at this point. Uh, so in our projections for India, I guess one way of measuring this would be to say, you know, say two years from now, would, how, how does India's GDP compare to what it would have been if there wasn't the pandemic. Uh, and the numbers that we have show that there's still a substantial gap. So in that sense, there is a long run effect. I, I wanted to, you know, there's a moral question about the whole uh, boosters and about vaccine inequity. Yeah. I wanted to ask you when in, with numbers like ours, you've seen the coverage in India, would you recommend, is it is it morally okay to recommend boosters? I mean, or is there a dilemma there? Well, I you know, the way I think about it is, first of all, the science should determine whether boosters are needed or not. 
and then it's important for governments and the private sector to ensure that there's enough production coming through so that this is not a moral dilemma. And it's possible. I'm not saying this is something that's not feasible. It's very feasible. A lot of, in, lot of vaccine production capacity has been set up around the world. Uh, if you can place orders in time to make sure that you get the vaccines, uh, you know, it, it's important to do that. Um, but again, you have to follow the signs on boosters. And, you know, until recently, the sense was for the somewhat older population, you know, 60 and above, that's where you would need the boosters. But now with Omicron, there seems to yeah. be evidence that you might need it uh, even at younger ages. Yeah, because even in the UK, while they've only said it for older people, yeah. I think people are just getting no, it. Now in UK, they've also expanded to, uh, I think, every adult. Yeah, because 18 plus people are also um, kind of going out there to get it. Um, is there anything that you think that should have been done or could be done, uh, which till now has gone amiss in the post-pandemic recovery, which uh, some action from the government? No, I think the, the biggest action that remains incomplete and is probably the most important thing the world needs is vaccinating the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is a deep in, inequity still. Around 70% of the population in high-income countries has been vaccinated, less than 4% in low-income countries. And, you know, we, everybody's been working hard to try and fix it. But unfortunately, this is the number one, not just one, but one health policy, but number one economic policy for the world. Because that's the only way we can prevent all these new variants from coming up. Uh, and uh, that is what needs to be done on a war footing. But isn't that a catch-22, for instance... The whole thing now, everybody's going in for boosters. So richer countries are not going to be able to share their vaccines. India had promised, but we all seem to be in that crisis right now that everyone's trying to give boosters and because every right. six months. So how but, do you fix that? So you're, you're right that if, uh, you know, s- several nations that have a lot of vaccines already, if they start deciding to offer boosters to everybody in their adult population, then that restricts supply for now to a lot of low-income countries. But again, I do think that this is a solvable problem, which is why there needs to be a global, you know, they, globally there has to be consensus on the fact that they, we can scale up production and we can get vaccine shots uh, much more widely. So, you know, there is a lot of production capacity that has been set up uh, in the world. And I think, you know, it's just about making sure that you're doing the math and you're saying, okay, well, if X percent goes here, this is how much we need. Make sure orders are placed. Make sure that they're delivered on time. It can be done. It's not It's not a... So setting thing. aside for COVAX, which shares with... Um, yes, yes. With, yeah. um, I just wanted to ask you, do you have any thoughts on, you know, there's a lot of thing about reform being pushed through and the farmers' law, you know, the farm laws um, getting held up now. Uh, the farmers are claiming that it's a major victory as well. It's been huge. I want to know if you had any thoughts on that. Well, with with any reforms, ultimately, uh, you have to, you know, imp- to be able to implement it, you need the support of, uh, um, of, of the people in the country to be willing to do it. Uh, and so, you know, you can build consensus in very different kinds of ways. Uh, and, you know, I, without commenting specifically on these laws, I would just say that there is a big need for reforms in the agricultural sector in India. It's 
it's low productivity. It's not very sustainable the way agriculture works. Um, in many places, there's free access to water and fertilizers and there's overuse of it. So, you know, important reforms are needed. Um, and, you know, I will leave it to the experts who kind of who can figure out how to politically make these things happen. So these were needed, but just the right way to... No, there is, there is absolutely, there's a need for these kinds of reforms. And there's also, uh, also, but it's also very important to make sure that whenever you have reforms, there's always going to be a transitory period where there are people who get very badly affected by these reforms, you know. And so to make sure that they are protected uh, is also, it, ha- it has to be a holistic package. Did this come up uh, in your conversation with the prime minister yesterday? No, we didn't talk about the, no, we didn't talk about this, but we talked about, you know, all the other issues of the world that we're grappling with in terms of the, you know, the pandemic and with, uh, with more generally reforms in general and so on. Your predecessor at IMF, of course, had a, um, had played a major role um, and a, held a major public position here in India. Do we see that? I know that you've just taken an IMF role, but I don't know if you had an offer with India. I know that you, you know, you advised Kerala government in the past. But uh, did you ever have an offer from the Indian government? And if in, if in future you do, should we expect you to? Because it's just been a trend, right? It's way too early. Let's see what happens. <laughs> that, that's all I'll say. But there was no job offer last night. No, let's not go into it. Okay, I just wanted to ask you, how do you see the, um, you know, there's a lot of talk about post-pandemic, everyone kind of, and it's a big economic thing as well. You know, shorter weeks, much more focus on the work-life balance and paying more attention to life. Lots of people are talking about, in India, we're not. Lots of people are talking about the great resignation. Yeah. This is that whole period. I want to know just your thoughts on this. That varies across countries. Like you said, no, it's not true in India. It's not true even in among advanced economies. You know, if you look at the U.S. and Canada, which are neighbors, in Canada, you don't see it. Uh, you see a lot of, la- you see labor force participation has gone back you know, has come back very strongly. Uh, on the other hand, in the U.S., you don't see that. You know, it's, uh, it, there are multiple reasons for it. I think some of it is people, you know, are now much, much more careful about going back to uh, jobs where there is a lot of uh, contact with other people because it's worried about the health uh, consequences of it. Uh, women's participation hasn't come back fully because of childcare uh, reasons. And the fact that women continue to be the main child caregivers, caregivers even in the U.S. Um, so I think that we're certainly going through a period now where people are rethinking because their lives are disrupted. They move to different places. They're working remotely. So people are indeed rethinking about what jobs do they want to do and where do they want to do this from. So we're certainly seeing that. But do you expect people to work weeks generally to cut down, like, Reduce. I what I suspect what's, what what is happening in, in the straws of the IMF is that we're moving to so-called hybrid work models, which is, you know, previously when instead of people being present in the office five days of the week, there will be some days of the week when you can choose to work from home. Uh, I think people have realized that that is a, you know, you can be quite productive working from home. Uh, and uh, that, that, at least for some time, that's going to be... Uh, uh, try even post pandemic. I think people are going to try the more hybrid form of working where it doesn't people don't have to be physically present. You can do some some of it is virtually done. And and my final question, it's more like a philosophy. Do you think that people who adopt or governments that adopt welfare measures, for example, we saw Jacinda Ardern 
come back after a major election um and the kerala um, uh, chief minister also come back and um and many people kind of attributed it to their policies welfare measures that they gave which were popular how they handled covid do you think that's like a shift uh, in general global uh, political trends that people are looking at um you know more welfare measures or their covid handling all of this how people you know worked in a crisis um as voting them back in no what certainly was true during covid was governments across the spectrum uh you know proactively started helping different parts of their uh, of their uh, of the of the population of the community because this was such an exogenous shock right which is it's not as if the, you know this was bad policies that then created trouble but you know this was a pandemic so everybody immediately recognized that it's important to um uh, help people help them with their lives and livelihoods uh, and I, and i suspect that in the process they you know they found new kinds of technology to transfer money to households they found new kinds of very innovative creative schemes of helping firms and households so i suspect that will have a long term effect people will realize that there are ways to help uh, help uh, people during in a crisis um you know in terms of the connection to to elections i think you know we there i haven't done this analysis but just anecdotally there are examples where welfareism works and others when it doesn't right i think it's about whether you're perceived as having provided good governance and good uh, has been an effective uh, and um, you know you're supposed to be related to akg as well i don't know if that's true or if that's a i are you I, you know i found that out when i read about it in the press <laughs> <laughs> okay so then me asking you whether he influenced your <laughs> Uh, economic world view or not is is perhaps yeah no i like i said i really did not know i was related to him until i read about it thank you so much for speaking to us thank, thank you. you if you enjoyed this edition of on the record don't forget to write to us you can contact me on twitter at sunetra c and on instagram miss sunetra to tell me what you thought of this interview and if you'd like me to interview a particular person That's it for now. Do like and subscribe and share this podcast. I'll be back again with another edition. Till then, goodbye. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.